Hey, welcome back to the Humble Perspectives podcast. After taking a short break after following the recording of my book, I want to begin the podcast again by sharing my meditations on the Sunday Advent Scriptures according to the Revised Common Lectionary. The RCL has a three-year cycle of readings. As I look back over the devotional meditations I've written over many years now, there are, of course, many similarities in the devotion every three years. However, I can see clear signs of growth in the way I've come to understand the applications of the Scriptures and not least in my understanding of the interconnections between the Old Testament readings and the New Testament readings. Writing, and now recording these devotionals, has contributed to me being more able to read the Bible as one book made up of many books, all grounded in the same story of God's interaction with His creation. In 2022, I not only sent out written meditations for year A of the three-year cycle, but for the first time I also released recorded versions as podcast. This year I am planning to record and release meditations for year B, and in 2024, the Lord willing, I will record meditations for the year C readings, thus completing the cycle. These recorded meditations will be expanded more than the written versions I've done before. In this episode, I will read each of the four scripture passages for December 3rd, the first Sunday of Advent in 2023. Following each reading, I will share some of my thoughts about the passage, and I will encourage you to read the passages with me, and I, take, and I also encourage you to take some time for yourself to ponder the scripture reading itself and even my comments prayerfully. And so now, the first reading, a reading from the prophets, Isaiah 64, verses 1 to 9. And I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible 2020 edition, unless I note otherwise. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, that the mountains would quake at your presence, as fire kindles brushwood, as fire causes water to boil, to make your name known for your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things which we did not expect, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. For from days of old they have not heard or perceived by ear, nor has I seen a God besides you who acts in behalf of one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices in doing righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. Behold, you were angry, for we sinned. We continued in our sins for a long time, yet shall we be saved? For all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment, and all of us wither like a leaf, and our wrongdoings like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name, who stirs himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us, and have surrendered us to the power of our wrongdoings. But now, Lord, the Hebrew there is God's covenant name, Yahweh. But now, Yahweh, you are our Father. 
We are the clay, and you are potter, and all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, Yahweh, nor remember wrongdoing forever. Behold, please look, all of us are your people. Isaiah 64, 1-9 is a spirit-inspired prayer offered by Isaiah. Through Isaiah, perhaps more clearly than to any other of his prophets, Yahweh had sent forth his case against his own people in Israel and Judah, as well as his indictments against the nations all around them. Yet in the midst of the words about coming judgment, God had also promised again and again that he would redeem his people and through them redeem the nations and establish his king to rule in justice and righteousness over all the nations. Beginning in Isaiah 63, 7, a few verses before the ones I read, the prophet had begun to intercede prophetically in prayer for the people of God. Isaiah's prayer began with praise for Yahweh's hesed, that is, Yahweh's faithful and merciful covenant love and goodness to his people, specifically when he had saved them from slavery in Egypt and in spite of their rebellion had brought them into the land as he had promised to their forefather Abraham. In chapter 63 verse 15, Isaiah began to identify Yahweh as our father, which was an uncommon way to address God in the Old Testament and he also called Yahweh our Redeemer from ancient times. In this prayer, Isaiah calls on Yahweh to act again on behalf of his people, even though at that point in history, to all appearances, it seemed as though God had never been their king, that they'd never been identified as God's people. Isaiah prayed in 63, verse 19. Although our Bibles have a chapter break at this point, there was no chapter break in the original language. Isaiah simply began to cry out in intercessory agony for God to act. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down to make your name known to your adversaries, that the nations may tremble at your presence. There's never been a God, Isaiah prayed, who's acted on behalf of his people like Yahweh had in former days when he delivered them from slavery in Egypt and had shaken Mount Sinai before them with the glory of his powerful presence. Yet the people sinned against God at the very foot of Sinai by making a golden calf. And then they continued to sin over the generations. Isaiah a true intercessor, then identifies himself with this people who are polluted by their sin. He says, all of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. All of us wither like a leaf, and our wrongdoings like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls on your name who stirs himself to hold, to take hold of you. Even though it seemed like God had turned his face away and allowed his people to be swallowed up in their sin. Still, Isaiah knows God's steadfast, faithful covenant love for his people. Therefore, the prophet intercedes for Yahweh. He calls on him, our Father, to act on their behalf, even though 
it might mean starting over as a potter might start over with a misshapen piece of clay. And God did act. When the fullness of time had come, God sent his son to be born of a virgin Jewish woman, Galatians 4.4 4 says. The only begotten Son of God became a human in order to redeem and to remake God's people. And that Son of God, Jesus, lives and reigns from the heavenly throne until his enemies be made his footstool, a footstool for his feet, as it says in Hebrews 10.13. And then the whole earth will be filled with his glory. In the meantime, King Jesus now calls us his people, the sons and daughters of his Father, whom we can call our Father. Jesus calls on us to pray and live in such a way that where, wherever we have authority and influence, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And wherever it's not done, he tells us, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth the way it's done in heaven. However, when we look at the church, especially in the Western world these days, all too often we see a people ravaged by sin and polluted by the idols of this age, gods of materialism, money, sexual immorality, and power. Nearly everywhere around us, we can see that Judeo-Christian foundations of culture and society in the Western nations, in our local communities, and in many church communities are broken and often have all but disappeared. We desperately need God to act in our day and in our communities to revive us and restore us to repentance and holiness so that we may faithfully call the nations and the peoples to the obedience of faith in Jesus our King. As we anticipate the celebration of our King's birth this year, will we only look back and remember the past Will we only think of the baby? Or will we, like Isaiah, fervently intercede before our King and God our Father? Will we pray fervently for His purposes to be fulfilled in His covenant people and in the nations? I ask again, will we only remember the baby born to Mary? Or, we will, or will we anticipate and intercede for the day when the enemies of King Jesus have become his footstool, the day he returns to live and reign among us forever. The second reading is from the Psalms, Psalm 80. Listen, shepherd of Israel, who leads jo Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, awaken your power and come to save us. God, restore us and make your face shine upon us, and we will be saved. Lord, Yahweh it is in the Hebrew, Lord, God of armies, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them with the bread of tears, and you have made them drink tears in large measure. You make us an object of contention to our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. God of armies, restore us and make your face shine upon us and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it and it took deep root and filled the land. 
The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its branches. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the Euphrates River. Why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar from the forest eats it away and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. God of armies, do turn back. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine the shoot which your right hand has planted, and of the Son whom you've strengthened for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish from the rebuke, rebuke of your face. face. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you made strong for yourself. Then will not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name. Yahweh, God of armies, restore us. Make your face shine upon us, and we will be saved. You can hear as I read that Psalm 80 is similar in a lot of ways to the prayer of Isaiah. God had disciplined his old covenant people, the vine, which he had transplanted out of Egypt, because they had turned away from him again and again they had turned away from him. They had turned from Yahweh, the true God, to serve no-God idols, as Eugene Peterson puts it in the Message translation. Therefore God had removed his protection from them. He had broken down the hedges that surrounded them and kept their enemies away, those walls of protection, and he had allowed them to be ravaged by their enemies. So this prayer is addressed to the shepherd of Israel, Notably, it was Jacob whom God had renamed Israel who first identified Yahweh as shepherd, declaring, God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, in Genesis 48:15. Later, David also would declare, The Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd, Psalm 23, 1. Since 1977, when I first heard Pete Sanchez's prayerful song, It Filled the Land, taken from Psalm 80, verses 8 to 15. This prayer in song by Asaph nearly always brings to my mind the increasing devastation of Christian culture in the Western nations, where the good news about Jesus had once powerfully produced good fruit. But now, as I said earlier in the comments on Isaiah, everywhere around us we see the rubble of broken Judeo-Christian foundations. How terribly, tragically, sad. Again and again, Psalm 80 calls me to pray for the church, for God's new covenant people, so that many of whom, so many of whom, have followed the thinking and ways of this present age, rather than to be renewed in the mind of Christ and to be transformed into his image and likeness. For centuries, the Jewish people prayed, turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand. That's Jesus, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we'll not turn back from you. Give us life and we'll call upon your name. That's again Psalm 80, verses 14 to 15 and 17, 18, as it's translated in the English Standard Version. 
think about it. Jesus is the true vine. And we who are joined to him are branches on the true vine. And we've been chosen, Jesus said, to produce fruit that lasts. John 15, 1-17. Jesus, God's only begotten Son, is the man of God's right hand. Jesus lived among men, was crucified and buried, then was resurrected and seated at the Father's right hand where he reigns over the heavens and the earth. Scripture doesn't say he's coming back to make his enemies his footstool. The Father said to him, according to Psalm 110, and so it's quoted again and again in the New Testament, sit and reign until. That means that we're living in the midst of those enemies and it's us who have to be about the business of living the kingdom and witnessing to the kingdom and interceding for his reign, for his enemies to be defeated. But all too often, we're all caught up in our own lives. All too often, we're thinking like the world. May God grant us the gift of repentance, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of the whole church and for the sake of the world, the cosmos, for which Jesus came to die. Let's pray often. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. And let's also pray. Right now, pray with me. Our Father, may all of God's people and also all of our lost family members, our neighbors, friends, and all who don't know you yet, turn from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for your Son from heaven, the one whom you raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. That prayer comes from 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10. I recommend that we pray often that any idols in our lives will be broken. Any idols in the people, in the lives of peoples of the church will be broken. And that the idols that are people are turning to in our nation and in our world would be crushed like the idol in the temple of Dagon back there in the story of Israel. For the third reading, we go to the epistles, 1 Corinthians 1, 3 to 9. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, just as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end. Blame us on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. After the last two passages that we looked at, this passage might seem a bit strange, and it might seem strange actually in an Advent context. 
The most obvious connection, though, is that in the clause, as you eagerly await the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, since the emphasis of the lectionary readings in the early weeks of Advent point toward the second coming of King Jesus more than to his birth in Bethlehem. However, if we give it due consideration, Paul's words to the church in Corinth can give us much needed encouragement in a time when it's easy to be discouraged and overwhelmed by the fact that many professing Christians and churches and even groups of churches have been giving into the spirit of this age rather than to, as Jude put it, contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all time handed down to the saints. The church in Corinth was one messed up group of believers. In that carnal community, there were factions, there was sexual immorality, brothers in Christ were suing one another in secular courts, there was confusion in marriages, there was great confusion in worship, their love feast, that is the weekly gatherings during which they shared a meal and celebrated the Lord's Supper, were polluted by selfishness, gluttony, drunkenness. Members of that church were treating spiritual gifts as reasons for pride and self-exaltation rather than as gifts of grace given to enable them to serve each other in love. Yet, in spite of their failings, in this opening passage, Paul expresses thankfulness that the members of this messed up community who are saints by calling, verse 2, Paul is thankful that they had been given grace and peace from God our Father, the same Father, by the way, that Isaiah was calling on, and from their Lord, King Jesus. What's more, Paul stated confidently that King Jesus would confirm them to the end. By God's faithfulness, Paul declared, in the coming day of our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, when he's revealed to all, these problem children of God will be presented guiltless and in the fellowship of the Son. Since that was true for those who were following Jesus so imperfectly in that day, then we too can pray with confidence for the messed up church in our day. It is by God's faithfulness that any and all of us who are in Christ will stand blameless in that day. For the Messiah was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold firmly to our confidence and the boast of our hope, Hebrews 3.6 says. To be sure, Paul, directed by the Holy Spirit, went on to call the Corinthians to account in no uncertain terms, and the good news is they listened. We read in his second letter to the Corinthians, or in 2 Corinthians, that they received Paul's words with sorrow that led them to repentance. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 to 11. So Paul prayed confidently for them because he knew that God had set them apart as his own and that God would complete the work that he had started. We too badly need God's Spirit to graciously expose our wrongdoing like he did theirs through Paul so that we too can repent and be healed. And we can be confident that God will finish what he started in us because the Father chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. 
Ephesians 1.4 Therefore, King Jesus himself also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Ephesians 5, 25b-27 So, during this Advent season, let us pray boldly and confidently for the church according to God's faithfulness, according to His faithfulness to keep His word, His faithfulness to fulfill His purposes, and His faithfulness to bring His people to salvation. And I close with this prayer from 1 Thessalonians 1, 12-23, adapted and shortened. May the Lord cause us to increase our overflow in love for one another and for all people. Lord, let that be true for your church, I pray, so that he may establish our hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And now for the last reading, we go to the Gospels, Mark 13, 24 to 37. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of God coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the end of the earth. To the end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. As soon as its branch has become tender and sprouts its leaves, you know that summer is near. So you too, when you see these things happening, recognize that he's near right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Watch out, stay alert, for you don't know when the appointed time is. It's like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay alert. Therefore, stay alert, for you don't know when the master of the house is coming whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, so that he does not come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay alert. And before I begin to apply this passage to the Advent anticipation of Jesus' second coming, I think it important to acknowledge that there are differences of opinion, even among excellent Bible scholars, about whether Mark 13, as well as similar passages in Matthew 24 and Luke 20, refer to the time of Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD or to Jesus' second coming. I think Jesus was speaking about both events. However, it's not always to easy to discern which specific event he's speaking about when you're reading through Mark 13 and the similar passages in the other Gospels. I would say that if you go back and read the account of the Jewish historian from the uh, second century, Josephus, about 
or for, I guess he lived in the first and second century, but his account of the history of the Jews and read his account of the destruction of Jerusalem, you will find that although he was far from a Christian, a lot of things took place that were similar to these signs that Jesus had talked about earlier in Mark 13. That he said, look, and you'll know he's near the door. Also, you, uh, the first church historian that we know of, at least the first church history that we have, is Eusebius, writing in the early part of the fourth century. And he tells us that because Jesus had given all these signs, there were no Christians killed when Jerusalem was destroyed because they all knew when to get out of the city and they went out to the mountains. So again, I think he was speaking about both events. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, quoting from Joel, says quite clearly that the wonders in the sky above and the signs of the earth below were taking place at that time in the outpouring of God's Spirit. A study of prophetic language in the Old Testament scriptures shows that such descriptions as the sun going dark and the moon turning to blood and the stars falling often indicates the end of a significant historic era or empire, such as in the prophecy concerning Babylon's fall in Isaiah 13 and the prophecy about the judgment of Egypt in Ezekiel 32. In those cases, there certainly wasn't a literal fall, uh, a literal element to the sun going dark and the moon turning to blood and stars falling out of the sky. It's talking about the end of those empires, the end of that age. And certainly the destruction, of, the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place when most of the disciples to whom Jesus was talking were still alive, in that period of time, an era of history was ending. The kingdom, as Jesus had said in Matthew 21, 43, was taken from Israel and given to Jesus and the church, which is all those who are Jew or Gentile who have their faith in him. So when quoting Joel's prophecy, Peter explicitly said that what was happening in that Pentecostal outpouring of the Spirit signaled that the last days had arrived. Therefore, we are 2,000 years further into the period which the Scripture calls the last days. That is, the last days of the old fallen order. Jesus, King Jesus' return will be the final end of the old order and the full establishment of the new order. That is, the new creation. That will be the time when all things will be made new. Revelation 21.5 Although we don't know when Jesus will return, we know the time is nearer now than it ever has been before. The words of Paul written to Jesus' disciples in Rome in the first century of the church are obviously even more pertinent now. He said, It's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. And the day is near. Therefore, let's rid ourselves of the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Romans 13, 11 to 12. It is absolutely vital for us to take Jesus seriously when he says, watch out, stay alert. And again, he says, 
what I say to you, that is to the disciples whom he is speaking, I say to all, that includes you and me, stay alert. What does it mean then to stay alert? The parable tells us, be doing what our master has assigned us to do. Jesus, resurrected from death, has ascended to the throne. He's sitting at the Father's right hand, reigning over the heavens and the earth. And he's left us responsible as his holy priesthood to pray for the kingdom to come so that God's will is done on earth the way it's done in heaven. Our king has left us responsible as his ambassadors to proclaim the good news of his reign to announce his offer of reconciliation to everyone, everywhere, who will repent and confess him to be Lord over all. And he has left us as his representatives responsible to learn his ways and to demonstrate with our lives the ways of his kingdom. Remember what the Master has said. What I say to you, I say to all, stay alert. There's a fourth century hymn writer, Prudentius, who had some marvelous ways of putting things into verse. He caught this, I think, very well. The winged messenger of day sings loud, foretelling dawn's approach, and Christ in stirring accents calls our slumbering souls to life with him. Away, he cries, with dull repose, the sleeps of death and sinful sloth, with hearts now hober, sober, just and pure. Keep watch, for I am very near. O God, our Father, God like a potter, I pray that you would mold us as clay into useful vessels. I pray that where your people are not awake, you would shake us and awake us and that we would be faithful. O oh God, bring forth good fruit on your vine. May God bless you. And in this season, I again ask you to join with me and with God's people as we seek for him to not just get us ready to celebrate Christmas, but to live and to be and to pray for the kingdom to come on earth as it already is in heaven, that his will would be done. God bless you all.